What a love. Beloved, we do stand forgiven. We are free from the penalty of our sin. And we have been freed from the power of that sin over us. We still wait, though, for the presence of sin to be taken away forever. And so as we wait for that day to come, we continue in need of God's grace. Not only for dealing with the penalty and the power of sin, but to help us to live as followers of Christ in a world that is still still cursed, in bodies that still wrestle with sin, in a community that still rejects our God. And so let us go to him and ask for his help. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it seems so trite. After the scriptures that we have read and the songs that we have sung to say thank you. Lord, I pray that you would use these not simply truths, but these realities to just overwhelm us with your grace, with your life. Our triune God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit welcoming us into the fellowship of the Trinity by uniting us to your Son, counting us as righteous so that we get to to share in what you have always had. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you would overwhelm us with the realities of the Gospels uh, that it would not just be words that we say or, or concepts that we think, but it would be realities that reform us and reshape us so that our hearts, our minds, and our wills, and our hands would grow to become more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ as you remake us in His image. Oh Lord, you promised to do this, but we work against your efforts. And so use this means of grace to reorient us to that work of covenant keeping. Covenant keeping that you have kept perfectly. Covenant keeping that you empower us to keep. Even imperfectly but as an opportunity to express our gratitude and to be used by you as channels of that good news to a world that needs it. And so we we ask, Lord, that you would bless this group here and all your followers of Christ with the life of Christ that will lead us to live the lives of discipleship and devotion with humbled hearts, relying upon you for everything 
serving you in everything that we undertake. Lord, there are many in our midst that struggle with this because of the ongoing pressures of their own sin. Lead them to repentance, Lord. Break their hearts and break them under the costliness of what their sin required of Christ in order that they may receive your love. And may that lead them to repent of their sin and humble themselves before you in a fresh way that they may serve you in their coming days. There are those who wrestle with the pressures of ongoing sin because of their bodies deteriorating as sin continues to take their mortal flesh and to destroy it because that's what sin does. But Lord, grant to them hearts that understand that what is happening to their bodies is not happening to their souls. And that even as those who are experiencing physical trauma, they still stand before you in the perfection of Jesus Christ. That they still stand under that eternal smile of a heavenly Father. And that though they are having to trust you in very difficult ways, Lord, may they know the strength of Christ. May they know the strength that is made perfect in weakness. And may they be encouraged, Lord, to continue to give themselves to you, even if there doesn't seem to be an immediate payoff in the near future. Father, help all of us to live in light of eternity instead of the moment-by-moment crises that we experience. But Father, we also pray that you would be willing, if it is your will, to heal those who need it, to heal those who are struggling with physical problems and disease. Father, we pray for those who wrestle with the weight of ongoing sin because they are watching loved ones deteriorate and even die under the consequences of sinful flesh. Grant them the encouragement to weep as those who have hope, to grieve as those who know that there is more that is still yet to come. We pray that you would keep them and bless them as as they rely on you through these difficult days. And we ask that you would use us in their lives to come around them, to put hands on them, and to speak words of love and encouragement to them, that they may know that not only do they have a community of faith here, but they have a God who is near through us. Father, we pray for those who struggle with following Christ because of the circumstances of their lives, whether it be uh, employment or other challenges that come to us. Father, help them to look past the immediate circumstances to their heavenly realities that in Christ they have already received all the blessings that can be received. And may they, through that strength, continue to trust you even as they look for for employment or more gainful employment, as they continue to look uh, for the needs that they have. Father, help them not to look to the world, but instead to continue to patiently wait for you to provide as the one who has promised to give them everything that they need. And Father, we pray for those who are serving you uh, uh, abroad, 
who have unique challenges of following you in um, weird and, and different cultures and circumstances where they live with not only the pressures of sin and the pressures of a wicked society, they live with the pressures that come from, from fear because of other religions that are, that are putting pressure upon them not to preach Christ, who are threatening them if they preach Christ that they will be harmed. And so, Father, give them the strength to manifest the faithfulness of Christ, even in the giving up of their lives, if that is what is required, in order to preach the only truth by which sinful men may come to know you. But, Father, use your word and sacrament in our lives, even today, to remind us that the calling to take up the cross to follow Christ is not only a call to be willing to die, it is a call to be willing to die to the flesh on a daily, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And so, Lord, we do pray that your grace would continue to hold us up, to give us the strength that we need not to be affected by the things that are temporary and passing away, but instead to be filled with the eternal realities that will never, ever depart. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning to Ecclesiastes 9. Ecclesiastes 9, we are going to read uh, from verses 1 through 10. Here in Ecclesiastes 9, it follows what was in Ecclesiastes 8. And if you recall, what we have focused on the last couple weeks is this reality that even though the appearances of this world might give us uh, the wrong perception that we exist at the whim of men, that we are in man's hands, Solomon has been working hard to get us to see that we are not. We are in God's hands. We are not in man's. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. 
and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all, my, with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have given this word to us that we might crave it. And through craving it, find the satisfaction that you have created us to desire. To find it in the truth. And to find it in the one who embodies that truth, our Savior Jesus Christ. And so speak to us and fill us. For indeed, there is so much that would long to crowd out what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. So use these words, Lord, to reshape that which we pursue, because we will pursue that we cannot help. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Solomon has been encouraging the people of God, specifically, as we said from the beginning of this, with uh, the, the royal court that Solomon is serving in his role as king, as a preacher, and he is addressing those in his royal court that would have consisted mainly of young men um, and even older men. Um, but the truths that he is communicating um, here are applicable for us all. And one of the main ideas that he has been seeking to encourage us with is to embrace the reality that life in this world, because of original sin, life is cursed, but there is still God's presence and goodness to be enjoyed even in a cursed world. But it takes wisdom to know how to do that. It takes wisdom to be able to accept the world as it is. It takes wisdom to be able to accept the world as it is and not be crushed by that. You see, one of the biggest temptations that we can have is when we rightly acknowledge that the world is not as God originally intended it to be is for us to grow frustrated for us to try to control the situation. Solomon has been telling us, passage after passage, that is vanity. It's hevel. It's vapor. It's not real. It's not concrete. It is certainly not eternal. The other temptation that he has addressed is this idea to just let go then. 
Well, if the world's just as it is, then I'll just, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, then I'll just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow I die. Now, it can be tempted, having just read this text, to think that that is what Solomon is promoting. But he has been very clear that that is foolishness. That resembles the madness of those who reject the existence of God, those who say in their hearts that God doesn't exist. That is madness. That is folly. To think that God is not watching, to think that God does not care, to think that God is not going to eventually bring all of this to conclusion. That is folly. It takes wisdom, Solomon is saying, to be able to embrace the world as it is and to not be crushed by it and to not join it. Do you want to know what else is vanity? Allowing the cursed world to define your life. You see, we have to acknowledge the cursed world. We have to acknowledge that the curse is going to be around until Jesus comes back. But that doesn't mean that our lives are defined by this cursed world. Instead, what Solomon is promoting to us, especially in chapter 8, is that we are to embrace the inscrutable ways of God. God is all-sovereign. God is all-providential. God has plans and purposes that he put together before the foundations of the earth, and he's going to accomplish those. Even if it looks like the world is spinning out of control, it's not. God is not up there spinning plates on poles, working really hard to keep them all from crashing. But he doesn't reveal to us all the specific details that go into that. He is all providential, but he doesn't give us the specifics of how he accomplishes that providence. He doesn't tell us the details of, so, you know, when this happens, what I'm really doing is this. No, what he says is, when this happens, trust me. When this happens, trust me. When things go well, trust me. When things go horrible, trust me. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And it takes wisdom, Solomon is telling us, to embrace the God who is providential, yet who is inscrutable in the details of how he carries out his providence. He tells us to trust. Now, what he has gotten at in chapter 8, in, in, in chapters really, you know, five through eight, is that there is no inherent advantage for the devoted under the sun. There is no inherent advantage by being a person who does trust God. There is no inherent advantage for you in this world when it comes to the realities of life 
under the curse. The same things happen to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to the one who makes sacrifices, to the one who doesn't make sacrifices, to the one who swears, and by that means taking a a religious oath, to the one who shuns an oath. These are all different ways of describing what it meant for Israel to be the chosen people of God and to devote themselves to Him and to not give themselves to the other gods. That as we read from Deuteronomy 6, as they went into the promised land, as those who had been rescued for Egypt, they were to embody the truth of God that he was revealing to them in the law. And that they were, in order to do that, they had to refrain from embracing the different options, the different religious options that were going to be present in the promised land. That they were to go into that promised land, they were to remember him and serve him only. And then when your kids see you serving him instead of going after one of those other gods or instead of going along with pop culture instead of embracing the worldviews that's promoted on tv and movies when your children say well why are you different why why is it that you don't go along with that prevailing wisdom of our society what does he say because god redeemed me And I owe him everything. God has redeemed us. And we owe him everything. But that's not going to earn you an immediate earthly benefit. As the good one is, so is the sinner, Solomon tells us. And so what this means for us is that we have to adjust our expectations. We have to adjust our expectations of what does it mean to follow God in a cursed world. We have to adjust what do we expect from God in living in a cursed world. We have to adjust what do we expect from being faithful to God in a cursed world. Our expectations have to come from God's word. Our expectations cannot come from the preferences of our own hearts and minds. It can't come from what we think should be happening. And that's what he has been addressing all the way back to chapter 5. The sacrifice of the fool is someone who sees the world is not going as it should be. And so when they go to church to worship, they go with the concerns of those things and they start telling God, God, things aren't going the way they're supposed to. You need to be doing something about it. We have to adjust our expectations for how we lived in a cursed world, especially, as he says here, where the hearts of man are full of evil, where the hearts of man are full of madness. Now, at different times, to varying degrees, in different cultures throughout history, 
Even wicked cultures have to some degree, more or less, accepted some of the the Judeo-Christian worldview, where some have been more influenced by others. And that is a wonderful blessing. But what God tells us here is that's not to become an expectation. The expectation is not that the hearts of sinful man will embrace my law even if they don't embrace my Savior. He doesn't say that. He tells us the world is full of men whose hearts are full of madness. They reject God. And they will reject God to greater and lesser degrees. There is no doubt about it. And it is a wonderful blessing when you get to live in a secular culture that is not rejecting God as as strongly as they could be. But when you find yourself living in a secular culture rejecting God and they are starting to reject Him more and more and more and where their rejection is becoming um, more consistent and where they are applying that rejection in the basis of the culture, in things like the law, what Solomon tells us is, don't lose hope. Don't give in. What else does an unbeliever have than himself or herself? If they're going to reject the authority of God and they're going to reject his truth, what else are they left with? They are left with the foolishness of their rebellion. Now, I point that out not to say, so no big deal. I point that out to help us develop more mercy towards the person who is ensnared and enjailed by their rebellion doesn't make their, their rebellion justified. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't dismiss it. It doesn't mean that we just go along to get along. But make no mistake, even when you're going to disagree with an unbeliever who is living according to their own ideas or their own authority, make no mistake, what they are doing is revealing to you that they are trapped. That they're doing what they think is best because you know what? They also feel the burden of living under the curse, even if they don't want to tell you that they do. You cannot live under the curse of God and not experience that curse. And beloved unbelievers experience that curse. They also have to deal with their own rebellious hearts that get themselves into trouble. They also have to deal with getting cancer. They also have to deal with losing jobs. They also have to deal with divorce. They also have to deal with fill in the blank. And guess what? They don't get excited about that. I cheated on my wife and now she's leaving me. Yes! They are hurting too. 
because they experience the curse, but they experience it without the hope that you and I have for dealing with that curse because of the one who took that curse upon himself, Jesus Christ. And the freedom from the curse that we experience, even if it's not the full and the the comprehensive freedom that we are looking for to come when Christ returns, until he does, we are free from the penalty of the curse. We are free from the power of the curse. We live with hope. We live with the hope of the living. The unbeliever deals with the curse by looking around, looking within, reading a book, watching a movie, and what do they find? They find one different message after another that promises something that it can never fulfill. Beloved, They need Christ. They need us to reveal Christ. And that has to mean more than just pointing our finger at them when they sin. It has to mean coming alongside and putting your arm around their shoulder and say, I understand why you may think that that is going to help. But let me share with you what is the only thing that can. You see, part of the mercy of Christ is that he has identified himself with sinners in their sin. And that's the Christ that we are presenting. The Christ who became the substitute. Right? We just sang it. That Christ became sin for us. What else do they have? But their own weak, paltry, inaccurate, completely ineffective way of trying to deal with the curse. That's what they have. And that's why Solomon has been telling us, don't be shocked when unbelievers reveal the fact that they are still dead in their sins. Not as a way of saying, so it's okay, don't worry about it. So that we can understand where they are. Because it becomes so difficult for us as those who have experienced new life in Christ to remember what it's like to be trapped. To remember what it's like to feel imprisoned. That we forget what it is like to have no hope. And that is why it is good sometimes, as Solomon has told us, for us to experience bad things. Because it reminds us of what we have in us. We have to adjust our expectations, and we have to adjust our hope. Yes, we live in a cursed world, but not all is dead. We are not in the hands of men. We are not even at the whim of the hearts of the wicked. We are in God's hand. Life is unpredictable. As he has been saying, life is unfair, as he has been saying. And guess what? 
All of us, you and me, are going to die. Okay, that's accepting the world as it is under the curse. But don't give in, don't give up. Don't give in to the temptation of, well, if if all there is is what is here and I'm going to die anyway, then I'll just eat, drink, and be merry, and then I'll die. Or if all there is 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 what I'm seeing before me, what I'll do is I'm going to double down on how dutiful I can be to God. I'm going to be so dutiful to God that not only will I make sure that I'm following God, I'm going to make sure everyone around me is following God too. Oh, wait, I think we saw what that ends up looking like. Jesus said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Christ came into this world knowing exactly the condition of this world. Knowing what he was going to do in taking sin upon himself on the cross. And how did he respond? Was he just happy and carefree? Or did he go around trying to control everybody? What did he do? He ate and he drank, and he fellowshiped, and he served, and he put his hands on dirty people, and he had meals with tax collectors. He came as one who understood things as they are, and he didn't let the curse define his life. He didn't let it define his life in terms of his response of joy to the Father, and he didn't allow it to define his life in terms of how he responded to sinners. What he allowed to define those two things for him were his relationship with God as it was fulfilled and revealed in things like eating and drinking and spending time with the hurting, and spending time with the dirty, and the rejected, and the outcast. And when the religious people got onto him and tried to change the way he was doing things, he revealed to them the truth. He didn't give in, but he also didn't just try to combat them and overtake them. He just revealed the truth, and he let the truth stand. Life is difficult, life is tempting, but what does Solomon tell us? Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine, and that really does mean wine. Drink your wine with a merry heart, wear garments that are white, make sure there's plenty of oil for your head, enjoy the relationship of marriage, and engage in your vocation with all your strength. 
You see, what the world will do, and we can, I can show you this in philosophy, but we don't have time, is that the world will teach you that because things are the way they are, then just give yourself completely to delight and don't worry about any duty. Or there are other philosophies that will say, just give yourself completely to duty and don't even worry about delight. And what God is showing us in his word through the words of Solomon and embodied in the life of Jesus Christ is that God wants us to hold both of these things together. Why is it that we can eat our bread with joy and drink our wine with a merry heart? Because God approves of it. It is what God intended for us in the garden prior to the fall. God made a garden for us. Have you ever thought about it that way? He made a garden for us. He made a beautiful garden for us. He made a garden that was full of every tree that was delightful to the eye and good for food. He didn't just make us and say, make something of this world. He gave us something beautiful and then said, enjoy it. And sin has indeed wrecked our enjoyment not by taking away the desire to enjoy, but by twisting the enjoyment, by twisting the desire, by turning our hearts into desiring the wrong things or desiring the right things in the wrong ways or desiring the right things for the wrong reasons. What has not changed is that as those, as those created in the image of God, you've been created as a desirer. And he is the one you are to desire. And the sin twists. But when we respond and we look at the sinful world and we say, I am not going to be defined by the curse. I am going to be designed by God's intents and purposes. Then we look at his world and we revel in it. And we enjoy it. And we eat food. And we drink wine. We wear our white garments. This is, this is imagery that would reflect people going to a wedding, right? We're putting on, in our day and age, right, the only person that's allowed to wear white is the bride, right? And find a woman that wears white, oh, man, she'll be talked about, right? Because, of, because we love her. But in this day, when you went to a wedding, everyone wore white. They lived in a dry, arid land. They didn't have 25 different types of conditioner. If you want to see all 25, come look in my shower. They're not mine. Oil was used to enrich and to, and to help that which was dry and could crack and become painful, and it was soothing. relationship that it was within the bonds of a covenant in marriage he's speaking primarily to men which is why he says enjoy the wife god gives you but it is also just the same to the wives enjoy the husband that god has given you and the enjoyment there um, as we will be looking at in our study on the song of solomon at some point is not just simply that you're in a nice relationship that you have a best friend there is all kind of enjoyments that go along with marriage that God intended to be enjoying and, and to be joyful. And he is saying, give yourself to that. 
Give yourself unreservedly to your purpose in this world through your vocation. What Solomon is not saying is eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. What he is saying is that eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you will feast in the house of Zion. Because there is one who has come who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death for you and with you, and he has gone to the cross for you and with you, and he has been raised for you and with you. And the result is now, even as we live in this world that is still under curse, we live as those who have a table set before us in the presence of a cursed world, and we have the promise of living in the house of the Lord forevermore. And Jesus in his eating and his drinking, how many times do we see him doing that at a wedding? And how many times do we, does he use parables that talk about inviting people to a wedding? And how many times do we have to be pointed to the reality that for us to be the church, we are Christ's bride, whom he is making beautiful as he gives us the beautiful white garment of a wedding dress of his perfection, as he will indeed call us together when he returns in the fullness of his presence and we're in the fullness of the gospel made real and tangible in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be celebrated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Beloved, he is not calling us to eat and drink and be merry because there's no tomorrow. He's calling us to eat and drink and be merry as an anticipation of the greater eating and drinking that will come in the full consummation of what you already possess in Jesus Christ. You know what is vanity? Allowing your life to be defined by the curse. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing grace. And we just ask, Lord, that you would use it in our lives and that you would help us to receive it by faith and that we would align ourselves to the work that you are doing by that grace through your Spirit as the, word takes your, as the Spirit takes your word and your sacrament and makes them real within our lives. Father, help us not to have the spirit of the Pharisee that divorces delight from duty and help us not to have the, the spirit of the lawless by dividing delight from duty, but help us, Lord, to exercise the mind of Christ which you've already given us by holding those two things together. And so, Father, we ask that you not only use this word, but we, that you ask that you use this sacrament as the sermon will now be made visual, and to use it in our lives for our good and for your glory. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.